Good morning. Today we'll be looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. I'd like to start by reading that passage from the English Standard Version. Mark 11, 1 through 11. Feel free to turn there, but also feel free to just listen as I read. I'm also going to have it up on the screen here. So Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Mark 11, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what it teaches us about you and about ourselves. And we thank you that it records for us your plan, your plan to save us and to glorify yourself. Help us to see today, Lord, as we look into your word, part of that plan, and to remember that you love us, and it is for that reason and for your glory that you did all these things. Open our eyes. Help me, Lord, not to speak anything that would bring dishonor to you, but to speak the truth. Help the listeners to hear what you have for them in this passage today. In the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. On March 27, 2023, six days ago, Audrey Hale, 28, shot and killed six people at the Covenant School, a private Christian elementary school in Nashville, Tennessee. Hale was a former student at the school. In an independent news internet article dated March 29th, Nashville Police Chief John Drake commenting on the shooting stated, we have a manifesto. We have some writings that we're going over that pertain to this date, the actual incident. We have a map drawn out of how this was all going to take place. Hale left behind a hand-drawn detailed map of the school's campus which included possible points of entry into the school building. She had also carried out surveillance of the building prior to the shooting. It is most definitely the case that this attack was intentional and planned. Planned and intentional, too, was the quick response by law enforcement officers who arrived at the school and stopped the shooter 14 minutes after the first 911 call it came in reporting an active shooter. Body cam footage shows the officers systematically moving through the building, searching for Hale before finding her on the second floor where two veteran officers ended her life. We've heard many stories like this through the years. Similar attacks have occurred at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas in 2022, Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut in 2012, Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia in 2007, 
and Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado in 1999. In these instances, attackers stashed weapons, planned their routes, and performed surveillance to ensure their murderous goals were reached. They had a plan, and they carried it out. It seems like often evil has a plan, and the good guys, the police, are just trying to catch up and stop it before it goes any further than it has to. Today, we're going to look at Mark 11, 1 through 11, and we're going to see an intentional plan carried out. But this time, it's for good and not evil. And the good resulting from this plan has far-reaching effects, not only for the here and now, but for all eternity. We will see a part of God's plan to save the world. The Gospel of Mark is one of what are known as the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are the first three books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The word synoptic comes from two Greek words, sun, which means together, and opsis, which means seeing. These three accounts of Jesus' ministry are arranged similarly, with events occurring in much the same order, as if the three authors were seeing together the events on which they're reporting. Evidence suggests that Mark was the first account written with Matthew and Luke shortly afterwards. John was written later and is arranged quite differently from the other three. All four gospel accounts record this event where Jesus enters Jerusalem before the Passover on a donkey. It is often referred to as the triumphal entry. These accounts work together to give us a fuller picture of what happened leading up to, during, and following Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem before his death, burial, and resurrection. So our primary passage is in Mark 11, but we're also going to look at the other gospel accounts to gain more insight into this event. Jesus' celebrated procession into Jerusalem. So we begin in Mark 11, 1 through 2, which reads, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Bethany and Bethphage were, according to best estimates, probably within a two-mile range of Jerusalem. So as, as Jesus and his disciples are approaching Jerusalem from the east, and this map that you see is, is situated so that up is north, down is south, uh, right is east, and west is left. So it's situated the way it should be. Um, so as they are approaching Jerusalem from the east, Jesus has two of his unnamed disciples, none of the four gospels tell us who they are, go into the village in front of them. Most likely, the village in front of them is Bethphage, which is mentioned in verse 1 and is most likely, as shown here, between Bethany and Jerusalem. Jesus and the twelve are most likely in Bethany, since John 12 records that Jesus came to Bethany six days before this, his final Passover. So it appears that Jesus is sending the two disciples west to Bethphage, and they are to bring the donkey east back to him in Bethany. So in verse 2, Jesus said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Jesus is telling them to go get an animal that doesn't belong to them and bring it back to him in Bethany. 
Leading up to the annual Army-Navy football game, there have been at least 12 instances where cadets from West Point kidnapped Bill, pictured here, the goat mascot of the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. There's also been one instance of midshipmen returning the favor. In 1992, mules from the U.S. Military Academy in West Point, New York, were stolen from West Point and brought to Annapolis. Pictured here is Ranger, the West Point mascot, being ridden by a midshipman. Mules are much more difficult to transport, a little more resistant. It's probably the reason it only happened once. Um, so when Jesus tells the disciples to go into Bethphage and get this animal, does it almost have the feel of a prank? Hey, go get this animal and bring it back to me. It, when, I, when I was looking at it and thinking about it, it almost seemed that way to me, hence the pictures and the story. Um, but Jesus is not doing this for any of those purposes. Jesus is focused, as he always has been, on doing his Father's will. And there is a promise that, as Messiah, he must fulfill. It's found in Zechariah 9. Mark doesn't reference this passage, but John and Matthew do. They make note of Zechariah 9.9, which reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So let's look now at the next few lines of this passage, Mark eleven three through 6. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. How did Jesus set this up? Did he speak with the donkey's owners beforehand? Did he say something like, on such and such a day, I'm going to send a couple of guys to get your donkey, which I'll return within a few hours. The way you'll know they're coming from me is that when you ask them why they're untying the donkey, they'll say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Just let them take it, and I'll make sure it gets back here, okay? Is that? That's a possibility. Um, there's no recorded instance of Jesus being in Bethphage before this. So, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen necessarily. Or, did he use his ability as the God-man to do this? Jesus is recorded as using such ability on other occasions, such as when he would not entrust himself to those who believed in him simply because they saw miracles before him. The text in John 2 reads, He knew all people, and he knew what was in a man, or knew what was in man. When he told Peter to go fishing and knew the first fish Peter caught would have a coin in its mouth so Peter could pay both Jesus and Peter's temple tax. There's another instance. Either way, through human means or divine, Jesus knew where this donkey was tied, to whom it belonged, and how those individuals would respond when told that the Lord needed their donkey. He made it happen whether through earthly means or divine ones. So we can see from these first few verses in Mark 11 that, and here's your first Roman numeral, Jesus had a mission and a plan to accomplish that mission. Jesus had a mission and a plan to accomplish that mission. I can imagine that the two unnamed disciples must have thought this was an odd set of directions from Jesus but they followed them. 
They knew that Jesus often did and said things that were difficult to understand. Like when Peter, who had been fishing all night and caught nothing, was told by Jesus to throw his net back into the water. Peter complained a little, but did what Jesus said. The results, a catch of fish so bountiful it started to break the net, made an impact. The disciples knew that Jesus knew what he was doing and knew what he was talking about. When asked to get the donkey, they got the donkey. A point of application here. Sometimes Jesus may tell you to do something that seems strange or difficult, something you just don't want to do. And when I say Jesus may tell you, I don't mean he audibly speaks to you, but rather he speaks through the Bible. The God breathed, and therefore Jesus breathed, scriptures. God has spoken and ensured his chosen authors recorded for our benefit what he wanted to be recorded. When Jesus tells you through Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 to flee sexual immorality, you should flee sexual immorality. When he tells you, again, through Paul in Ephesians 4.25 to put away falsehood and speak the truth with your neighbor, you should put away falsehood and speak the truth with your neighbor. Jesus has your best interests in mind. He knows what's best. One item of note here, too, is that in Matthew's triumphal entry account in chapter 21 of Matthew, the disciples untie and bring back two donkeys, the young donkey and its mother. Because of this, some have called into question the Bible's accuracy. Have we come across here a reason to doubt the Bible's infallibility? Is this a contradiction? The other accounts do refer to one donkey, but they don't say only one donkey. One explanation for the two donkeys in Matthew is that mother donkeys stay close to their foals when they're young, and they gradually begin to separate. So this is a young donkey. It has never been sat on before, and the mother doesn't want to leave it. Therefore, both donkeys are brought back to Jesus. With eyewitness accounts, there are often differences due to viewpoint and what one person saw that another didn't or didn't think was necessary to mention. In the mind of J. Warner Wallace, a homicide detective who became a Christian by looking at the evidence for Jesus, such differences in eyewitness accounts lend more believability, not less, to an eyewitness account. Wallace tells the story of a crime scene where it took him a while to arrive to begin his detective work. It was raining at the scene, and to keep the witnesses comfortable, the police officers present placed the witnesses to the crime in the backseat of a squad car, waiting for Wallace to arrive to begin questioning them. They sat in the car together, unattended, for about an hour. One of the rules, or the cardinal rules of crime investigation, is to separate the witnesses. Putting them together allows them to get their story straight. When Wallace questioned them later, they all told him the same story with practically no differences. The eyewitness story showed the earmarks of conspiracy. That is, that the witnesses collaborated and made sure they all said the same thing. When there are variations in eyewitness accounts, it indicates that they are likely actual eyewitness accounts. Different people with different viewpoints and different points of emphasis who saw the same events from different angles. That's what we see in the Gospels. There are some differences in other accounts since we're hearing from eyewitnesses whose stories will differ in some ways from the stories of other eyewitnesses. So Now on to verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. 
and he sat on it. When entering cities over which they ruled, kings in the ancient Near East, where Jesus and his disciples are located in this story, usually rode in on an animal of some sort. If they came as a conquering king, one who was either at war or whose forces had conquered the city which he was entering, he would ride a war horse. We see Jesus doing this later in the book of Revelation as he comes to destroy the armies of the nations of the earth who have joined forces against him. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 reads, Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the, of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. However, if the king was coming in peace to a city, he would ride on an animal that was less aggressive, a lowly creature, a humble beast of burden, a donkey or mule. And this indeed is what Jesus is doing. He is coming in peace. The future scene of final judgment from the book of Revelation, which ends with a carpet of dead and a banquet for scavenging birds, is not playing out here on the road from Bethany to Jerusalem. Here rides the humble king, the one who has come to save. Jesus made it known to Nicodemus in John 3.17 that he did not come to conquer as the Jewish people expected. Jesus proclaims, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now on to verses 8 through 10. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So did this crowd, these people, just look over, see Jesus on a donkey, and decide to celebrate him? Was this just a spontaneous outpouring of praise for Jesus? Like, hey, isn't that Jesus over there? Let's put palm branches on the ground, along with our cloaks, and yell a psalm at him. No, this was not quite that spontaneous. How do we know that? Mark doesn't really tell us, but John does. John's gospel gives some background information regarding the gathered crowds in Mark's account. Just prior to these events, Jesus had performed a rather notable miracle in Bethany, the town from which he's riding the donkey into Jerusalem. Now, all miracles are notable, but this one was mind-blowing. And it grabbed the attention not only of those who were favorably disposed towards Jesus, but also the ones who hated him and wanted him out of the way. The Jewish religious leaders, namely Caiaphas the high priest and the Pharisees. Shortly before the events we're looking at, Jesus has raised to life Lazarus, a man who had been dead for four days. 
This drew many people towards Jesus, and John writes that many Jews believed in him on account of this. But it also cemented in the minds of the opposing religious leaders that Jesus had to die, lest his following continue to increase and the Romans do away with the nation of Israel. This provides rather interesting commentary on the unbelieving heart that a miracle in which a dead man was raised would elicit the response of murder. In John eleven forty seven through 54, just after Lazarus is raised, we see this discussion among Jesus' opponents. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Jesus knew that the religious leaders were out to kill him, but he still had more to accomplish before he died. So he put some distance, about 14 miles worth, between himself and the homicidal religious people. Ephraim was most likely about 13 miles north and east of Jerusalem, according to best estimates. So Jesus is in exile now, so he can stay alive a little longer and do what the Father requires. So the Passover is near, and we find out from John 11:55 through 57 that people are looking for Jesus, expecting that as is his custom, he will go to Jerusalem for the feast. John 11:55 through 57 reads, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Later in John 12, 18, we see that the, reasons the, crowd, the reason the crowds came out is because of Christ's raising of Lazarus. John 12, 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign, that is, raising Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus knew that news of what he did for Lazarus had spread and that the people were waiting for him to welcome him, to give him a grand entrance into Jerusalem. So this brings us to point number two. Jesus used all things to accomplish his mission. Jesus used all things to accomplish his mission. Jesus was the God-man. He knew the effect that raising Lazarus from the dead would have on the people in and around Jerusalem. He knew that it was near the Passover. He knew where the donkey was located, and he knew what it would take to get it to him. He knew about Zechariah's king on a donkey prophecy and orchestrated all these events in order to accomplish his mission. Later, just before Jesus is arrested and put on trial, 
he says to God the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So the people, stirred by Jesus' display of power, that is the raising of Lazarus, power that only God possesses, they go out to meet Jesus and celebrate his arrival by laying down their cloaks and palm branches in his path. Mark eleven eight. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Cloaks. Anybody own a cloak? I don't see any cloaks. Um, you may not even know what a cloak is. Cloaks were essentially two heavy blankets sewn together with slits for armholes. We don't customarily wear cloaks nowadays, but who knows what fashion trends await us. I have seen young people in this church recently who are wearing clothes that if they walked into my 10th grade algebra class, they could sit down and no one would bat an eye. They look exactly like people that I went to school with in that time. It all comes back, folks. So if you have a cloak, hang on to it. It might come back into fashion. Why did the crowd lay down their cloaks? Cloaks were an important part of daily life in Israel. Everyone wore a cloak. They were used for protection from sandstorms and also as a blanket to keep warm at night. The law of Moses required that if a cloak was given as collateral, it had to be returned before nightfall because, according to Exodus twenty-two twenty-seven, it is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? Cloaks were valuable and indispensable. Saul of Tarsus watched the cloaks of those stoning Stephen because they were likely to be taken by thieves if left unattended. Cloaks came to be identified with the person wearing them so that laying one's cloak before another was like laying oneself before him. This was an expression of submission before a king. Centuries earlier, we see Israelites doing this for Jehu, in 2 Kings 9.13, after he is anointed king of Israel. The people in the crowd in Mark 11, by laying their cloaks before Jesus, were essentially bowing before him as the Messiah King, the promised son of David, who was, they thought, now coming to reign. We read here, too, that leafy branches are laid on the road, and John 12 clarifies that these are, in fact, date palm branches. Why palm branches? These were symbols of celebration and victory, of triumph. The crowd was looking again to Jesus as the conquering Messiah, the one who would free them from Rome's tyranny, not realizing that the freedom he was bringing, freedom from sin and death, was a far greater liberation than mere political liberty. The crowd is also shouting to him. In verses 9 and 10, we see... And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save. They are calling out for Messiah to save them from Roman oppression. The content of what they are calling out comes from Israel's history in Psalm 118, 25 through 26, which reads... Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The people don't realize what they're asking for when they call for Jesus to save. 
Jesus has come to save, but as was mentioned before, not from political oppression. He has come to save from sin. And the process leading to his death, burial, and resurrection begins in earnest here as he makes his way into Jerusalem, where the last string of events that bring eternal, eternal and ultimate salvation will occur. Verse 11 reads, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. We don't really know what time of day Jesus' ride from Bethany to Jerusalem began or how long it lasted. And we don't know how long Jesus' tour of the temple took. Mark writes that he looked around at everything, but by the time he finished, it was already late. So he and his disciples went back to Bethany, presumably to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, where Jesus spent time when he was in the vicinity. The looking around seems to be more than simply touring the grounds. Uh, Jesus had been to Jerusalem many times. He knew how the temple was laid out. He knew what was in there. He had seen it. He'd seen the city. He was very familiar with Jerusalem. So it wasn't like he was a tourist walking around and looking at everything and, and ooing and eyeing. It wasn't like that. It is perhaps a preparation for what Jesus does the next day when he clears the temple of money changers. It may be that he is surveying the scene and formulating his plan to drive them out. Perhaps he is deciding where he will start with the overturning of the tables, where he will stand when he is blocking the movement of merchandise into the temple, where he will position himself when he proclaims in Mark eleven seventeen, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This temple cleansing may have been a shock to the gathered Jews who expected Jesus to scold and drive out the Romans when, in fact, he is scolding and driving out fellow Jews. What is he doing? What is going on here? This may be the beginning of the turning against Jesus by the general population when they realize he is not doing what they want him to do. We can look back at all that Jesus is doing and has done leading up to his entry into Jerusalem and know that whatever he has done and is doing is for God's glory and mankind's good. In fact, that is the final summarizing point I'd like to make. Roman numeral three, Jesus's mission is for God's glory and mankind's good. Jesus's mission is for God's glory and mankind's good. From before the creation of the world, the plan of God has been that Jesus would bear the sin of fallen mankind and save them from eternal death. In Genesis 3, we first read of the coming chosen one, the Messiah, the anointed one, who through his actions would save mankind from sin. The scriptures are the story of how God, through one nation, through one bloodline in that nation, brought forth the Messiah, the Christ, God in the form of man to save the world. Jesus is that anointed one, and everything he did and said was part of his mission to do his Father's will, to bring about his Father's glory and the salvation, the ultimate good for his people, that is, all those who would place their faith in him and all that he would accomplish. So, Jesus had a mission and a plan to accomplish that mission. 
Everything the Father gave Jesus to do was what Jesus did. Every dot and every iota of the law and the prophets he would accomplish. Jesus' goal was to do his Father's will perfectly and completely. He made sure of it. Even something as seemingly insignificant as riding a donkey into Jerusalem. Two, Jesus used all things to accomplish his mission. Jesus used everything at his disposal, which, as God, was literally everything. He used everything at his disposal to do the work the Father had given him to do. He used people, animals, events, thoughts, evil, and good for his Father's purposes. And number three, Jesus' mission is for God's glory and man's good, mankind's good. Jesus brought glory to his Father and salvation to mankind by his work. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He saved us according to the eternal plan of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your great wisdom and power you sent your son Jesus in the power of your spirit to accomplish the work that you gave him to do. We thank you that he did indeed accomplish your will bringing you glory and securing eternal life for all those who place their faith in him and his work. Help us to be aware of your plan this week as we prepare to celebrate the resurrection of your son Jesus next week. In the name of your son Jesus, I pray. Amen.